Welcome to the Focusrite Pro podcast. On this show, we sit down with artists and product specialists on the cutting edge of pro audio. We chat about current production trends, techniques and gear, and what the future might hold. For more stories and to look inside today's industry-leading music and film studios, head on over to the Focusrite Pro website, where we feature case studies and interviews with Grammy and Oscar-winning producers and engineers who center their workflows around Focusrite gear. Now, without further ado, let's head to the episode. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Focusrite Pro podcast. To borrow the title of David Letterman's popular Netflix show, our next guest needs no introduction, but we're going to give him one anyway. <laughs> Mitch has a very successful career in pro audio on the content creator side, as well as the retailer side. He's also a successful journalist who was the former editor-in-chief of EQ Magazine and the technical editor of Keyboard Magazine, Church Sound, and he was also the associate editor of Live Sound Magazine. Mitch is an expert in music technology. He's an author, an editor, an audio engineer, a composer, a musician, and just an all-around good guy. His new EP is out called Foundation. You know him from being the face of Sweetwater from the thousands of videos he's been featured in. Please welcome Mr. Mitch Gallagher to the show. Welcome, Mitch. How are you doing today? I am doing great. Thank you for that introduction. I'll try to try to live up to all that. I, I can't believe I got through that in, in one take. I, I, don't, I feel like I had one little stumble that I can live with. Yeah, very impressive. <laughs> well, really great to have you. I'm, I, I was so excited when Tom and I were, were thinking of who we'd like to get on for guests. And it was kind of a dream list that we put together and you very quickly um, agreed to be on the show. So thank you for that. We, we really, oh, appreciate, really appreciate having you on here. Uh, yeah, I've known you for a few years, uh, going back to other companies. And yeah, really great to learn a little bit about you. It, it's always funny on these things when you think you know somebody until you interview them on a podcast, and then you really get to know somebody. So right, right, right. One quick thing before we get going, I, I was reading your bio, and it very casually mentions that you're a classically trained National, National Association of Recording Arts and Sciences award winning composer. I uh-huh. really appreciate your humility here, but isn't that a Grammy? Uh, yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so the the story is that I was uh, I was in graduate school at University of Missouri, Kansas City, mm-hmm. and uh, wrote this piece that was based on the Fibonacci number series mm-hmm. for percussion ensemble and synthesizers. They recorded it as part of a concert series there, and uh, it was submitted to the the Grammys, and uh, it ended up winning in the, the category of uh, Best New Music, New Classical, Amazing. which is kind of one of those back of the book kind of uh, categories. But yeah, it was it was super cool. And, uh, you know, it's, it's yeah, I mean, what an honor. Yeah, I know. Isn't, isn't that cool? How fun is that? Congratulations on that. And it seems like oh, that's thank you. Yeah. at the beginning of your career, you know, just as you're getting started, what a, what a great thing to to push you and jumpstart you. Yeah, absolutely. It was, uh, yeah, it, it was super exciting and, and kind of, took me to a crossroads of whether I would pursue composing full-time or maybe at the time I was in grad school, whether I'd pursue being a you know university teacher, composition teacher or something like that, or if I'd go to, you know, try to do film scores or, or whatever, or ultimately I ended up at Sweetwater, which was uh, the first time I, I came here. So there was sort of a crossroads that I reached there, but it's, it's worked out pretty well. Going back to what I read about early is you got your start in audio because you listened to the album Kiss Alive. And I mentioned that because uh, I, I mentioned before the we started recording here that it was your fault that I listened to that <laughs> album yesterday. But then I corrected myself and 
I gave you credit for me yeah. listening to that album yesterday, <laughs> which was a fun one while I was working. Yeah. Uh, but that's the album that started it all for you. It made you want to pick up a guitar. Is that your first start in audio? And what was it about that album that did it for you? What was it about that? I, I remember... What I remember was, I, I think I was homesick with pneumonia or something from school for, you know, where you had to stay home for a couple of weeks, you know, I guess, which has kind of come back around the last year and a half. But I was I was home with uh, pneumonia, I believe it was. And uh, I think I saw a TV commercial for this album with these crazy costumed guys jumping around with fire and, and you know, all the, the stuff that was going on. And and uh, must have mentioned I wanted it because my mom bought it for me mm. and and brought it home and we put it on the console stereo and and played it. And I was totally fell in love with it. Just was like, man, this is the, the best thing ever. I want to be a guitar player who does all the stuff Gene Simmons does, <laughs> you know, breathing <laughs> fire and uh, <laughs> spinning blood and you know, all, all that crazy stuff, you know. Now, I've and seen I, you play, but you did not have platform boots on. You want to I you didn't. Get I don't that? have the platform boots. No, the, the guitar doesn't shoot any fire or right. <laughs> no smoke bombs. Have you thought of incorporating uh, spitting blood or pyrotechnics into the Sweetwater review videos? You know, think what a difference that would make. I, I, think, I think that would make an impact if we did that. It would be noticed. That's yeah. It would be, yeah, it would be a pretty big marketing success, I think. No doubt. Yeah. You mentioned that you were at Sweetwater twice. And one thing that you talked about was that you were like the fifth sales engineer originally at Sweetwater, which is, that's amazing. Congratulations. You know, oh, you've been there. You. you said you left and went back, but your employee number is still 30, which is just incredible to see yeah. the amount of growth from when you started there until now. Yeah, it, it's, it's been something. I was, I'm fifth or sixth. It depends on how you count. I think there was somebody who came and went in the middle there. So I was the fifth that stuck. We'll say, we'll say that way. But I was, I was probably technically the sixth one hired. But anyway, yeah, that was the very early days when uh, Chuck Surak, the founder of the company, was still pretty much doing sales at that time. And there were sure. five of us and, and a small studio behind. And, and uh, there were just maybe 20 of us in, in the company at the time. So to watch it grow from a little metal building in a gravel parking lot in a cornfield in Indiana into, uh, you know, this this amazing company through the years has been just, it's hard to express how amazing it's been to watch that that whole ride. Yeah. What, what an amazing ride you've been a part of. Yeah. Yeah. How did you, how did you transition to where you are now in the company from sales? Was mm -hmm. it because of all of your writing credits and things like that, that you kind of ended up doing what you're doing now? Yeah, kind of the, the short story is I, I came here to do sales and progressed to be the one of the senior sales engineers as the company grew and then uh, transitioned to being in the more the marketing department. So the first newsletters and things, I was I was part of those, the Sweet Notes newsletter that oh, we, cool. we still send out the print newsletter. Mm -hmm. The very first early uh, catalogs that we put mm -hmm. out, which were a little bit more like pamphlets and flyers and things. And so I was doing that kind of stuff. And I also started the Word for the Day glossary which is still online in the tech tip of the day glossary, which is still online. You know, there's thousands of entries up there. And I did several thousand of each of those uh, <laughs> myself as well. But what happened is actually kind of the same way I found the position here at Sweetwater. When I came to Sweetwater, I saw a little ad in the back of Mix Magazine mm -hmm. and uh, contacted them and applied and ended up coming here. And I was always a big fan of the magazines and reading Keyboard Magazine. I saw a little ad in the back where they were looking for an editorial assistant. Man, guitar player, keyboard, bass player, those were my Bibles, you know, when mm -hmm. I was learning to play and, and I was just so into those magazines. And so just the opportunity to work in one of those magazines was so exciting to me. So I applied and uh, they they said, well, an editorial assistant is really just that, just an assistant and you're way overqualified for that. But we need a technical editor. 
And so I uh, ended up getting the position as technical editor and later senior technical editor at Keyboard, transitioned to editor-in-chief at EQ. And around 2005 or so, let's just say the magazine industry took a turn yeah. somewhere somewhere in that range. <laughs> and uh, a lot of the fun for me went out of it uh, because of the corporate stuff that was going on with all the, the magazine world. And I don't need to go any further into it than that. But I contacted Chuck, again, the founder of Sweetwater, and uh, we had stayed in touch through the years. I left on very good terms. We were still friends. He said, well, do come back here and do for Sweetwater what you've been doing for the magazines, because I need somebody to head up the print publications and to be an editor and, and kind of oversee all that. So I came back with the title of editorial director, which is still my title, although I don't do a whole lot of that anymore, <laughs> and uh, was mainly doing print publications. But then in 2009, this new thing started popping up and people became very interested in this YouTube thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we did our first videos and they, they were looking for somebody to do videos. And I said, well, I'll, I'll try. I don't know. I'll, I'll give it a try. <laughs> you know, it's not really anything I've ever done. Yeah. But uh, here I am, 2,500, 2,600 videos later. Uh, I still do edit the Sweet Notes newsletter publication. Mm -hmm. I still do writing for the website. I still do a lot of that kind of stuff. But probably three quarters of my time here is really on the content creation, primarily video. Thinking back 2,500 videos ago, do you remember your first video and your feelings of, well, we're going to see if this is going to work? <laughs> <laughs> the, you know, it was, it was, they were pretty funny when I go back and look at them now, because it was, uh, I think somebody had a handy cam or something. They're like, well, I have a handy cam. I can bring it in. And, and uh, so I just sat at my desk, you know, manufacturers send me stuff all the time and there's always stuff coming in. So those early videos were what's new on Mitch's desk. Oh, so I'd be like, well, cool, actually. well, this showed up and uh, I'm going to plug it in and see what it does. And and so I talk about three or four products and those were those early videos and they're, they're pretty painful. <laughs> <laughs> it's been really cool to watch kind of the way that the content that you've produced there has evolved. Cause I remember when I first started noticing them, they were definitely like a lot of the gear reviews, quick tips, stuff like that. And then you kind of transitioned to being able to interview some really amazing artists and stuff like watching you interview John Mayer was a big right. one for me. How has yeah. that been? Have you had any favorite guests that you've interviewed or any kind of like bucket list, probably a few bucket list items, I imagine, but. Yeah, it was, um. When Sweetwater got to a certain point, then uh, manufacturers started bringing artists in to do demos and talk sure. about their products and to support things. And and then artists were coming more and more to town and we were more visible. And so uh, that really has uh, kind of exploded. It's kind of become a thing where somebody comes to town, they try to get over and we do an interview or whatever, or a manufacturer will bring somebody in or whatever. Yeah. Uh, so that's, yeah, it's been really cool. And the list of people has been just phenomenal, both with the interviews and, of course, all our live appearances at GearFest that we bring artists in for mm -hmm. uh, as well. But, yeah, as far as bucket lists, I mean, I'm a guitar player. You know, certainly uh, a number of my heroes have been here. Everybody from Steve Morris, who is with the Dixie Dregs and currently with Deep Purple, to Steve Vai, to uh, Eric Johnson and Robin Ford and John Schofield. And, I mean, the list is, it, it's really, really very long. John Mayer was phenomenal. Carlos Santana. Mm -hmm. I'm sure I'm forgetting a bunch. Uh, Bootsy Collins was a great interview. That was oh, so fun to yeah. be, do that one. And so, yeah, there have been some really fun, really fun interviews. And people always ask, who was the worst or who was the most difficult <laughs> or who was, a, who was a problem? And, you know, I, I have to say, I'll, I'll just answer that now that we really haven't had anybody like that come in I mean, everybody comes in and what I found, and I'm sure you guys have found this too, meeting artists and dealing with them is that to get to a certain point, you just have to be a decent person. Yeah. There, there just aren't that many that 
you know, regardless of what you see on social media or whatever, there's there just aren't that many that are difficult people because you just wouldn't last. Yeah. If they're hard to work with, people aren't going to work with you. It's just as short as that. So, yeah, it's uh, universally been really fun to meet all these people and get to uh, to talk with them. It's interesting sometimes that people are characters on social media and things like that. And you kind of think like, oh, man, this guy's going to be a jerk or this or, you know, but then you meet him in person and they're the sweetest person you've ever met. And, and you realize it's just a character and an act that they put on. Right. Because of, you know, how they've been perceived in the past. But speaking still of all of those people that you've interviewed over the years, meeting some of your guitar heroes, and I'm sure you've met some production heroes and engineering heroes as well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Are there any tips or tricks that you've taken away from those interviews that you still use and pass along today? Wow, that's a great question. I don't know if I've been asked that before. I don't know if there are specific tips or tricks. I I probably could find something. But what always comes across to me is the people who are really successful, whether they're producers or they're musicians or songwriters or whatever, whatever aspect of what they're doing, live sound engineers, is just the they're universally so passionate about what they do and they universally love music and love audio so much. And, uh, I, I always walk away just so inspired after every one of those. I mean, every one of those interviews I've done, I, I walk away inspired because it's like, yeah, I want to be as passionate about it and love it as much as, as they do and, and be into it as much as they do. So, I mean, and that's really the thing that keeps us going, right? Is that, that yeah. passion we have yeah. for always sounding better and always playing better and always writing better and all that. And you don't lose that when you get to the top of the heap to yep. a person, they're still working every day, probably working harder most of them who are who are really at the top of their game are probably working harder now than they did on the way up. So that's the yeah. other thing that I take away is just how hard they work and how passionate they are. That is what made me fall in love with working with the audio industry. Exactly what you just described. You meet people. I always just describe them to people who aren't into audio as like they could walk into any grocery store. And this is speaking particularly of a lot of producers and engineers. They could walk into any grocery store and probably like nobody will recognize them, but they walk into a room of engineers and everybody's, you know, geeking out. Right. You meet those people and you think, oh man, maybe they're going to be stuck up or something. But no, they're audio geeks yeah. like us. They're, they love to share tips, what they're working on, everything. And, and yeah, it's just so inspiring and, and fun to talk to those people. Yeah, yeah. it sure is. And I, I don't know if you've noticed this, this too, but they're also, I've never met anyone who refused to answer a question or refused to mm. share their mm-hmm. their knowledge. I mean, just again, to a person, they're they're just very giving as far as giving back what they know and what they've experienced and sharing it and trying to help other musicians and engineers. I mean, there's we're all in business or whatever, but uh, that the competitive thing is definitely way behind mm-hmm. the, the sharing and trying to elevate everybody uh, aspect of it. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, speaking of that, Dan, if you don't mind, I kind of would like to transition to talking about uh, Mitch's EP. I think this is a perfect segue into that because uh, from the way that it's been explained, you collaborated with a lot of people, some Mm -hmm. of your heroes as well. Could you explain to us uh, what the process was like for producing that? Yeah. Thank you, by the way, for bringing that up. You guys mentioned you listened to it. I appreciate that as well. You know, I'm, I'm one of those guys who for, I guess I'll say maybe even decades was the, I'm going to do it all myself. I'm going to write 12 songs. I'm going to put an album out and it's going to be all me. And I'm, I'm going to be the one man guy team <laughs> <laughs> putting this thing out. And unfortunately with the demands of life and jobs and, and everything else, it's just really hard to do that. And I'm not sure it's the most productive or even the best way to do things. So what happened to kind of break me away from that is you know, we do sessions here in Sweetwater Studios all the time and session musicians come in and artists come in and, and are working on projects. And I found out 
that a group of musicians were coming in to record a project. And it was uh, Keith Carlock, who's the drummer for Steely Dan and Toto and Sting. And in my opinion, one of the best drummers in the world right now was coming in. And Adam Nitty, who has played with everybody from, oh my gosh, uh, I mean, just an incredible list of artists that as a bass player, he's played with. Michael Whitaker, who's a Nashville Session keyboardist and film composer. I did a lot of work in LA and still does a lot of film score work as well. So those three guys were coming in to work with an artist. And um, I reached out via the studio and said, hey, if you guys are coming in, would you mind coming in a day early and do some sessions for me? And they were all willing to do that. They all had the day free in their uh, in their schedule. And so then this was like three weeks before the session was taking place. So, you know, what I'm doing then at that point Every spare minute in the whether it's in the lunchroom or early in the morning or late, I'm writing music, right? Trying to, yeah. <laughs> trying to get things done. So I ended up coming up with five songs and we went in on that day before their official sessions and tracked those five songs and those guys were just amazing. Then that was where I learned that yes, I can do everything on the project myself, but I'm not sure I should. Because <laughs> yeah. I would never yeah. come up with a drum part like Keith Carlock comes up right. with, and I, you know, I, I can never play bass like Adam Nitty does, and certainly not play keyboards like Michael Whitaker, right. you know, and, and let alone the the fresh ideas and the fresh perspectives and the energy and the just the dynamic that they brought to it as a live performing. Basically, we did it as a quartet, so I, I sat in and did rough rough guitar tracks with them. That's amazing. Did you like send them the music ahead of time and they could practice it, or was it literally? No, uh, it was a, Brian Wilson pet sounds. Here you go. Here you yep, go. Here's, <laughs> I had I had super light. I had super uh, man. Just sketches in uh, Studio One and Pro Tools. Uh-huh. That was it. Just kind of chord progressions with melodies and maybe a little idea of a feel. And so that I'd give awesome. them a chart and we'd talk about it. We go in and we ran it down once or twice, and and we never did more than wow. two takes. Wow. Any, any of those songs. So it's either the first take or the second take. And there is so little editing. Wow. wow. I, I think I fixed one. There's one song where I fixed one piano note. I used Melodyne to just, you know, and I had written the chord wrong. It wasn't that uh, I played it wrong. I had written the chord wrong. And so I fixed that and, you know, tighten a few things up here and there. But I mean, that's when you work with artists on that level, mm-hmm. yeah. that's what you get. And again, that's when I kind of realized that, yes, I could play the bass parts, but Why? Adam's going to do so much better than me. And I bet that was uh, uh, a treat to mix too. Yeah, it, it was. I, I didn't track. So I had an engineer uh, mm-hmm. was was tracking it for me, which was great because I could focus on the music and focus on producing. So again, I learned something there mm-hmm. that uh, not having to split my brain uh, <laughs> yeah. was for, for me, uh, the result was better. But yeah, then when I when I got those tracks and, you know, you sit down to the editing stage and there's not much editing, a little cleanup here and there and, and a few little fixes and even the tones, you you hear engineers talk about, well, I just put the microphone on the amp and uh, I don't have to do any EQing or any of that kind of stuff. And and I think we've all, I know I have, gone into the studio and put the microphone in front of the amp and I still end up having to EQ it oh, yeah. <laughs> after the fact or pretty whatever. much every time for me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but artists on that level tend to deliver pretty finished sounds too. You know, that's what they do every day. They, yeah, they, yeah. That's what they do is produce professional level sounds yeah. of things. So the amount of processing and stuff I had to do was so much less. Than mm-hmm. with uh, if I had done it myself or, you know, yeah. uh, maybe musicians that weren't quite on, on that level is it really was a revelation to me sure. to, awesome. to work with them and just how fast they work, too. Yeah. You know, of course, they're all phenomenal sight readers. And so blown away by that, too. Yeah. <laughs> so, so we did the basic tracks and I kind of cleaned those up and got those together. Then I took it, the project home to my home studio and uh, recorded the guitar parts 
and sort of laid all those down and got all those in there. And in the meantime, I was working with an arranger in Nashville named John Hinchy, who's a phenomenal trombone player, mm -hmm. but also a great arranger. And he arranged uh, horn section parts for me for several of the songs. Yeah. And so I uh, made a trip down to Ocean Way in Nashville, and we tracked cool. the, the horn parts. While I was there, also had a wonderful saxophone player named Tyler Summers. Yeah. Played as part of the ensemble, part of the horn section, but then he stayed after and did some sax solos and some mm -hmm. sax melodies and, and that kind of stuff for me. So once again, you know, kind of players on that level, you just kind of get finished tracks. Yeah. And, and then it all just kind of comes together. Yeah. The uh, final piece of the puzzle then was a, a friend of mine, Carl Verheyen. Yep. Uh, who's Carl. a well-known LA session guy, plays with Supertramp for 30 years or something like that. He uh, played some parts on a couple of songs for me as well, which was a real treat to have him into that. He was here at Sweetwater, actually, and we uh, went into the studio and recorded his parts here. Yeah. So that, that was kind of the whole tracking part of the process. Heck of a nice guy, Carl. He is wonderful. Yeah. 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 We almost worked together on something. Didn't quite make it work, but we it was a pleasure working with him, uh, you know, trying to get it to line up. But uh, right. I think it was some timings or something like that. But yeah, really, really a great guy. And a phenomenal player, just a, an amazing player. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah, you, I'm glad you brought up the horns and the sax player because, yeah, you... You can't leave them out. That was, you know, kind of like the icing on the cake for the album, in my opinion. Really, oh, really great parts that were written and then performed. And yeah, it, it really uh, tied everything together. The, the, the sax is incredible on that. Yeah, absolutely. Tyler's amazing and all the, all the musicians were. Mm -hmm. I really didn't want it to be a... I, I have a couple of hundred of um, guitar player albums. Mm -hmm. And they're great. I listen to them once or twice and, and they're great. And there's there's a few that stand out that I listen to over and over again. Eric Johnson, Robin Ford, Steve I, Joe Satriani. I mean, those guys are, you know, I can listen to those over and over again. But a lot of guitar player solo albums, I, I find I listen to them once or twice. Yeah. And uh, I didn't see where I'd be able to surpass that myself. Yeah. So my approach was to make this much more of a band project. Got it. Oh, okay. I, I really, which is why we track all the backing tracks live. Mm -hmm. And we tracked all the horns live and all that stuff. Was so to get that vibe of a band, a band playing in the room. Mm. Instead of it being a solo project for me, I know my name's on it, but I didn't really want it to be a. Here's Mitch doing a shredder album because I I can't shred like that. First of all, and second <laughs> second of all, once again when I had that revelation that wow these guys are doing way better than I would have done by myself, it became a band project, and I I'm very very happy with how that came out. Nice. Yeah. One thing I, I want people listening to this to take away, especially young people who are kind of trying to decide what they want to do or maybe uh, just finished up school or something like that, is just how accessible production has become. Anybody like like Mitch said, he just heard they were coming in and was like, what the heck, I'll shoot him a, a message and see if I can't get him in. Mm -hmm. it's always worth sending an email to somebody if you want to try to work with them, yep. sending them an Instagram or a Twitter message. A lot of the people for really big bands, they are always looking for session work. They're always looking to pick up some extra cash and you'd be surprised, you know, some of them are willing to take up a session for relatively affordable rates, certainly less than, you know, you immediately picture in your head when you think of the band name, whoever that might be. But yeah, I think that's one of the biggest takeaways from your story, Mitch, is yeah. if you have an idea in your head, you can try to just will it into being and just go do it. That's exactly true. It's uh, And of course, if there's a positive that's come out of the last year and a half, it's that more and more musicians are working from home. They've mm -hmm. set up home studios, they're recording, and they're even more accessible than they were. Because mm -hmm. as you said, everyone's looking to do more work and to stay busy with things. Typically, I've found that um, if someone can't do it or doesn't isn't able to do it, it's because of a scheduling thing, not so right. much a uh, you know yeah. s uh, something else. Because exactly, you know, that's what people are doing. 
Yeah. They're doing, and uh, part of the reason it's more affordable these days is because people are doing it at home. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so they're not having to pay for a, a studio and, and all that kind of stuff. Not always. Depends. Drums sometimes maybe uh, a little yeah. different, but it extends beyond that as far as having your songs mixed yeah. by yeah. a pro mix engineer. Right. Or uh, I was telling you guys, uh, we talked before that I took this to New York and had it mastered. Mm-hmm. at the end to, again, get yet another perspective on it, which is super valuable. Yep. Mm-hmm. And mastering these days is very accessible and, and right. uh, affordable as well. So, yeah, there's a lot of ways to involve other musicians and other engineers and producers in, in your work without spending a lot of money. And ultimately, I think involving those extra, not extra people, those additional people always seems to elevate the final result. Yeah, absolutely. I was just writing myself a note on something exactly like that. You started off talking about how you didn't want it to be all you. And one of the things, if you're the person that is the producer, you're the engineer, you're the musician, you're the mastering engineer, of course, it's going to sound great to you because there's no more perspective in it. It's all your perspective. And there's so much value in getting the perspective of all artists in the project. And, and don't forget your engineers. You know, of course, they are an integral, integral part of creating the art, you know, adding to your vision. So yeah, that, that was that was really great. I'm, I'm glad that you talked through that whole process. And of course, not all of us get access to Sweetwater and all of these great musicians. This is scalable, right? You know, this is probably a scalable model to any type of budget or skill level. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a, I would say it's a hybrid approach. You know, I did at home what I could do at home and felt comfortable with. And most of the editing and the mixing that I did, I actually did in earbuds in the diner here at Sweetwater. We have a a really nice diner with with great food. And so I'd pull up the table with my laptop and did all of the preliminary mixing and editing and everything there. And then took the, as close to finish, there were probably 85% finished tracks into Sweetwater Studios on the big monitor system in the tune rooms and and did the final tweaks, the final EQing, the final processing, and uh, also ran out through summing mixers and did, you know, that whole thing just for that last 15%. And so, you know, that's a, that's a few hours of studio time. And it, yeah. it certainly costs money, but it contributes to a successful project on, on that as well. Yeah. And that's, you know, I, I think sometimes... I always kind of thought, well, if I involve other people in this and give it to somebody else to master or somebody else to mix or whatever, uh, which I haven't done yet, I may try that on the next one. But uh, you feel like you lose control of the project or maybe mm-hmm. it's not your project anymore or whatever. But anymore, I don't see it that way. I think you guys use the word collaborators yeah. and, and working together and, and using the strengths of people who are stronger than you are in, in whatever area or just have a different perspective, as you yeah. mentioned, because you do get too close to it. Oh yeah, and it's it's very easy to do that, and I'm I'm certainly guilty of of never finishing because of perfectionism. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, that's a that's a trap. Yeah, you know that's that's a trap. You're better off to get a little bit of external input and perspective yeah. and move the project along and get it finished. I, that's so true. I I don't know if you've been watching the new Beatles documentary Get Back. I haven't seen it yet. No, I'm, oh, I'm anxious man, to watch incredible. it. One of my takeaways with it was directly related to what you just said. Those guys are just cranking out songs. I mean, the whole, the documentary is them covering them, recording the album, Let It Be, writing and recording the album, Let It Be. And they're just churning out song after song after song after song. And they're not nitpicking every little part and wondering was perfect. I was talking to my brother about this and he was like, if you write 300 crappy songs and one, let it be, then you win. Like (laughs) you've done well. (laughs) Right. Right. It's like, yeah, it's it's a numbers game. And the more you do it, the more you're learning as you're doing it. And uh, yeah. 
Yeah, they're, they're kind of two approaches that I was reading, reading something. Uh, there's a, a songwriter in Nashville, a, a musician, his name is Andrew Peterson. He has a book called Adorning the Dark, which is about creative approach. And uh, he's in the CCM market, but it's a lot about creativity and, and songwriting. things. And, and one of the things that came out in that book was he had told somebody, you know, don't write the bad songs, write the good songs. And somebody else said, yes, write the good songs, but also write the bad songs because <laughs> yeah. you, you learn something in all of those, right? right. There's a, yeah. you learn something every time you do it. Yeah. And so the more you do it, the better you get. And again, if you bring somebody else in, they're going to have a different perspective and, and right. you're going to learn something and, and yeah. everybody gets better. Yeah. And I mean, how many how many uh, anecdotes have we heard of really famous songs where the person who wrote it was like, that's the song on this album that was a hit? Like, <laughs> I didn't see that coming, you know. Right. Exactly. <laughs> oh, no. Now I have to play this for the next 20 years. <laughs> You know, one thing that I was I was just thinking of, and I'm, I'm struggling to find a question around this, but it's your comfort zone. I think staying in our comfort zone is safe for all of us, but it's sounding to me like you need to push yourself to the edges of that and then exceed it. And an mm. example that just popped into my head is all of those things that you dread doing because you don't want to learn it and you think it's something that's going to be too difficult. Like when I first started audio engineering school, patch bays, you know, patch bays and signal flow. That's, I think, something that all new engineers struggle with. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, well, I'm never going to use outboard gear anyway. I don't need to know this. Well, now it's like, that's my favorite thing is just teaching signal flow to people and using outboard gear. You know, right. when, I, when I would go into studios, um, I absolutely love the patch bay now. It's like something fun for me. I assume you push yourself to the limits and outside of your comfort zone. Am I reaching with that thought? No, that that is uh, the probably the fastest way to grow, and and the fastest way to improve is to always reach a little bit beyond what you can comfortably attain, right? Mm -hmm. And that's whether it's uh, working with the gear or learning software or trying different styles or different approaches or different things. But it's even putting yourself into situations where maybe you're not as comfortable as you'd like to be. Mm -hmm. A couple of weeks ago. Through mutual friends, I was asked to play in the pit orchestra for a musical at a university here. Cool. When I was in college, I did quite a bit of that. Uh -huh. You know, I was I was reading a lot. I was studying classical guitar, and I was also studying electric guitar, and kind of aiming in that direction. And so I was reading a lot, and I was a pretty good sight reader. But I haven't done that in a lot of years. And so uh, I was asked to play for this pit orchestra, which was electric guitar, nylon string guitar, steel string guitar, banjo, mandolin, and dobro parts. Wow. Uh, which I ended up doing with a Variax, which is really cool and a different mm. story entirely. But, you know, I got this book of 100 pages of music and the first rehearsals in a couple of days. And here we go. Follow the conductor. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And as, as guitar players, we don't follow conductors. We don't work right. in those kind of ensembles every day. You know, and you're sitting next to a saxophone player and a clarinet player and a flute player. And that's what they do all day long is read music and follow a conductor. And uh, so talk about being outside your comfort zone. Sure. Yeah. You know, that was I've described it as half 50% terror and 50% thrill because <laughs> there's no, you know, you're, there you are. It's right out there. So if you come in in the wrong place or you don't end when everybody yeah. else ends or you're mm -hmm. out of key or whatever, it's instantly audible. And so that oh, was yeah. a, but I, I certainly came away even after the two weeks of rehearsals and, and performances, I was probably a much better sight reader than I've been in a long, long time. You know, just from yeah. not having a choice of right, yeah. doing that. So so that was uh, maybe stretching farther than I'd be comfortable with all the time. But once in a while, it's good to push yourself. It is. Yeah. What I love about things like that, too, like what you just described there, there like uh, bringing in all those collaborators on your EP is you meet so many people that you wouldn't have met otherwise that then can lead to other, you know, projects or friendships that you may not have anticipated. And uh, it's one of those things I, I have found personally that every time I have 
push myself out of my comfort zone to do something, even if I didn't succeed at whatever it was I was trying to do, I almost never regret having tried because I learned something, met somebody, grew a little bit, whatever it might be. Pretty much everything you do in this, and certainly in our industry and in the arts, really, is by knowing people and meeting people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I I think sometimes people think you do that at cocktail parties and and that kind of stuff. But that just isn't the way it works. It's, uh, you know, I played in this pit orchestra and who knows, a year from now, I might get the call from the guy who was playing the drums. Right. You know, (laughs) know, wanting somebody or whatever. And I don't I don't know. But you know what I'm saying is that that's the way that stuff tends to work and snowball. And even again, when you talk to the top artists, that's the same way it works for them. They meet somebody and say they say, hey, we should play on a song together. We should do this together. We should try something and they stay in touch and and things happen and they meet other people through them. And and that's how your career grows. And that's how you progress. Yep. And like you said, even sharing info with each other. One of the things uh, at Focusrite Pro specifically, we've really been talking a lot about immersive audio over the past couple of years. Since Apple made the announcement with the spatial audio thing, one of the most fascinating things that I've seen is some of these really top level engineers who are kind of just like, okay, and this seems like it's going to stick around, unlike, you know, surround sound music did. How the heck do I even do it? And they're reaching out to these other people, you know, they all know each other. So they're reaching right. out and all so-and-so mm-hmm. build an Atmos studio. And they're like, oh man, it's awesome. Come on over and, and listen. And I'll show mm-hmm. you this template I made. You know, right. and these are, these are the people that are mixing the really big, you know, albums and everything. And uh, yeah, it's just so cool to see, like you mentioned earlier, that it's, I've never seen it of like, oh, this is my thing. I, I came up with a way of, it's like, dude, this is awesome. Let me show you how I did this. This is cool. Exactly. Yeah, right. That's exactly right. Yep, <laughs> right. Yep, exactly. You know, I, I have one more audio related question. and I'm going to let Tom go from there. And I have another slightly less audio related question. But this goes back to when you were in college, when you're in Moorhead, Minnesota, which that's my mm-hmm. home state. Oh, yeah. I hope you enjoyed your time there. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but during college, you were teaching 30 guitar lessons each week. Mm-hmm. Something that I learned from teaching is that I learn far more from teaching than I do from actually sitting in a class and learning. Is that something that you find as well? Yeah, man. When I was going to college, I was teaching about 30 lessons a week at a local music store. Mm -hmm. But I was also, I went through the first year curriculum for electronic music and for recording. As soon as I finished that first year, they said, you know, you have as good or a better grasp of this than anyone, why don't you teach the labs and the classes and and do that kind of stuff? And so I was teaching those classes too, while I was doing that. And it's just kind of grown from there. I still teach, uh, we have something called Sweetwater University here. Mm -hmm. And when a new sales engineer comes in, they go through a 13 week course that is incredibly intense. It's eight hours a day of constant high level classes on everything from, there's some sales training in there, but, but most of it is I teach a class on tube amplifiers. I teach a class oh, on cool. the basics of MIDI, which is all the MIDI messages and all that kind of stuff. And there are classes on drums. And now, uh, because we're carrying orchestral and, and band instruments, there's classes on all of that as well. And so, anyway, I, I teach those classes. And I've also been involved here at IU Purdue. Uh, Indiana University oh, yeah. and Purdue have branches here. And uh, I've done a lot of teaching there as well, oh, uh, cool. recording and music business and, and some of those kind of classes, too. And I... Boy, that's a long way to answer your question that, yes, absolutely, that that is a tremendously valuable uh, way yeah. to learn yeah. is to teach. Because to teach something, you have to understand it extremely well. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, everyone you teach is going to have a little different perspective, a little different take on it. Yeah. The questions you get always inform 
your knowledge. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it's it's almost like a collaborative kind of thing when you it teach is. because you, you learn as much as the students do. Yeah, that's that's what I was just that's how I was trying to tie those together is, you know, you're collaborating with musicians, but then you you have a blank canvas with a student or, you know, semi blank canvas. But then you learn from them, you know, because they ask the questions that you might not have thought of or they ask it in a way that makes you think in a different direction. And then it just helps you grow as well. Or if it's something you don't know, you help them by researching and, and learning it with them. So so, right. yeah, there, there's always um, when I I haven't taught anything, I, I taught some guys some Pro Tools stuff like a long time ago. But I found out I learned so much more about Pro Tools and about studios and things like that just from teaching these guys that had hired me for some private lessons. Yeah. Almost more than I learned in music school. You know, I think music school taught me how to ask the questions or how to research the questions, but then, yeah, it was, it was pretty cool. Yep. That is absolutely true. I agree. (laughs) Well, I have something, uh, Tom, do you have anything else you'd like to follow up with before I completely derail us and sidetrack this thing? (laughs) (laughs) I have, I have a couple last questions for Mitch. Great. The first one may be, um, confidential, Sweetwater insider information. So, you know, if you blink twice for yes, blink once for no, (laughs) are we going to find out that Sweetwater has some advanced biochemical laboratory and you're actually one of many Mitch clones that are doing (laughs) reviews and teaching classes Uh, (laughs) and recording EPs? That's a scary thought, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, you you seem to stay very, very busy. I I admire (laughs) that. You know, I, you know, there's the cliche that if you love what you're doing, you never work a day in your life or whatever. And I, I don't know. That's a, that's a hundred percent true, but man, I, I just have so much fun. I mean, I, I mean, really, how could you not? I, I, I get new gear before everybody else does. I get mm-hmm. to play with it and learn it. And then I get to do videos and show people how it works. And I get to play cool instruments and interview amazing artists and learn from all these people and go to trade shows and visit manufacturers. I mean, come on. Yeah. <laughs> who, who, yes. I mean, it's, a I mean, it's just a blast. I'm with you. I, I yeah. have a blast. It's, it's just so, so fun. And the, the other stuff I do, I mean, I, I feel like it's really important for me in what I do to stay active making music. Yeah. Whether yeah. that's, I don't practice my classical guitar as much as I should, but, uh, you know, I try to pick that up now and then. And I try to play, I'm playing tonight. In fact, I'm, I'm doing an acoustic duo gig uh, tonight in a wine bar. And, oh, and I, cool. I, just, I feel it's important to play and to use the gear and to make music yeah. and to stay active in it. But even, you know, I guess the other part about all this is, is even if I wasn't getting paid by Sweetwater to do all this, I'd do it anyway. Yeah. You know, it's, it's not don't like tell I, them that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> don't tell them but about this it, interview. Yeah. But I do it so much better when I'm being paid. I, I'm so much better when I'm being paid. <laughs> I can <laughs> I can afford to eat. I can have yeah. a house. <laughs> but but it, it really it really is true. I mean, this is just what I love to do. I love the gear. I love the people. I love musicians and engineers. And I, I have so much fun. Yeah. And um, man, it's just a blast. And so yeah, I'm I'm busy a lot. I have a very understanding wife and and, uh, and she's also really into music and all this stuff as well. Cool. And so, uh, you know, it, it's a great partnership that allows me to do all these, these incredible things and to meet all these great people. So yeah, it, it's busy, but it's not work. That's great to hear, man. Yeah. I, I feel much the same way most of the time. Good. Very, Good, yeah. very privileged just to work in the audio industry. Like it, yeah. it really is yeah, it's such, a, it's such an awesome space to be. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. We get to talk to great people like you by doing this podcast, which is oh man, that's, that's which, very is, kind which, of you. 
it, it's been fun. This this podcast ride has really been a fun one. You know, just gives us access. You ask somebody some question on the street, they don't answer you, and you say, "Hey, well, let's broadcast it for the whole world to hear." You can get anybody on the podcast. Yeah, so. yeah funny how that works. <laughs> it is. It is. And and I, I find myself not wanting to answer people's emails, but then they ask me to be on their podcast. I'm like, "Man, I'll do that. Of course, I will." Yeah. <laughs> so funny. Um, yeah. Yeah, really, really fun stuff. Yeah, we, we've talked to some really great guests uh, recently. And, you know, we took a bit of a hiatus there from the show. And, and yeah, we had some great guests before and continuing this. We're going to push forward with our short list of, of some really great content to come as well. Oh, good. Um, good. Yeah, look forward to it. But now, now Mitch, a couple of questions here. So have you perfected the old fashioned recipe? And <laughs> uh, that, that is a close one to me personally. Yeah. 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 Uh, I'm very basic and I'm very much a creature of habit of doing things just one way. Is there a side recipe, uh, something slightly less traditional that you like? Man, I, I, I recently had one uh, that was a, a brown butter old fashioned. Ooh, ooh, that was, that, that was good. phenomenal. That was really good. And so I've got to learn how to brown butter and incorporate it into the, uh, the quest for the ultimate old fashioned, because yeah. that is a pretty amazing thing. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, I, I, I tried a whole bunch of different recipes and tried sure. a bunch of different uh, ingredients and things. And I've ended up going back to kind of the basics, kind of the original straight ahead kind of thing. That's what yeah. works. And, uh, That's it, it sounds fantastic. I mean, it's called old fashioned for a reason. Like it's an old fashioned <laughs> recipe. Yes. Yeah, like, in the name. On. It's in the <laughs> name, you know, my, uh, and that's where I am. I'm, I'm stuck there with that one. But I will say the key to success that I've found is, um, I, I think sometimes people think that when you make a, a drink or cocktail or whatever, you have to be careful not to put too much ice in or it gets too diluted or any of those kind of things. But actually the perfect amount of dilution makes all the difference. Mm, and stirring instead of shaking is yeah. the other, uh, yeah. the other key as far as I'm concerned. But, but yeah, diluting it just the right amount yep. is the, uh, and that's the, the, key to right. uh to the success i think well i'll play around with that and uh <laughs> and, uh, well very good mitch um tom do you yeah. have anything else you want to add before we before we wrap this up i had a quick one i'm wondering you're you're a guitar guy as you've said mm -hmm. you have access to um what some may call one of the world's best inventories of guitars uh what's what's your desert island guitar good one. Oh man that is a, a great question i have um Sorry, this may be a longer answer than you want. But, uh, I mean, you ask you a guitar guy a question like that, you're going to get a long answer. So it's, it's well, there's, kind of a, there's kind of a background to it. So when I started buying audio gear and building my home studios and doing all that stuff, my approach was always to, I'm going to get everything I can so I'm ready for anything that comes along. If a singer-songwriter comes in, I'll be ready to mic them. And if a drum kit comes in, I'll be ready to mic them. And when the Philharmonic needs to come into my garage, <laughs> I'll be ready to mic them up. And, you know, I have the mic locker to cover it and the preamps and everything. And I finally realized that that's not what I do. And so I've uh, taken this approach with my home studio of narrowing it down to the gear, getting the best gear I can to achieve exactly what I do, which is record guitars, record acoustic guitars, record classical guitar, et cetera, mix mm -hmm. and edit and you know, whatever it is. I, I try to have the pieces specifically for those tasks. And I've kind of done the same thing with guitars. For a while, I was like, I might need this. I might need that. I might need this. And so I ended up with a whole bunch of guitars that I never played. <laughs> so long way to get to where I'm currently at, which is I have actually downsized my collection, but upscaled it. No, sure. And so nice. I have fewer instruments, but nicer instruments. And actually, I've been on a quest this last year, in addition to old fashions, to uh, make those guitars as good as I can. And so to answer your question... For me lately, what I've been playing a lot is a, a Gibson CS336. 
Mm. which is sort of, if you see it, it looks like a downsized ES-335, a semi-hollow oh, body. Semi, yeah. But the construction is very different. What they do is actually take a one-piece mahogany back and they hollow it out. And wow. And then put a, maple, put a maple top on it. So what it's closer to construction-wise is a hollowed-out Les Paul. But it's shaped like and responds like a 335 or 345, 355, semi-hollow body. And so it's kind of the best of both worlds of getting the Les Paul aggressive, big, sustained thing, Mm -hmm. but also that sweet, really resonant, responsive tone of a semi-hollow body. And so especially on stage, that guitar is the music I do. That guitar awesome. just, just covers me uh, covers me so well. So I, I kind of have it. I'm just perfecting. I'm actually experimenting a little bit with pickups in it right now. Mm-hmm. And that's what I've been doing with some of my other guitars, too, is swapping pickups in and out and changing yeah. some of the hardware and swapping a few necks here I and there. See, I saw on your Instagram that you're also trying out some different amp sim. I saw you had the Strymon yeah. IR pedal, which I was actually looking at picking that up myself. I've been kind of going down the same path. There are so many cool uh, amp emulators and modelers right now. Mm-hmm. For the silent board that I, I built that I use when I play in church, I put a Strymon Iridium on it, and it, it's been fantastic. It just works so well, and uh, uh, built a pedal board around it that uh, it's just been awesome and so easy. Yeah, this thing you know, seems really consistent, too. Like. And consistent, and yeah, I, I can, uh, you know, we were talking a little bit earlier, and I mentioned delivering that finished sound. Well, I can deliver a finished sound to the front of house guy. They don't have to EQ. They don't have to compress. Mm-hmm. They don't have to. Uh, and so I've gotten a lot of thank yous from them. Yeah, I was going to say, they probably love that. Just, they don't have to go try to make a cab. Yeah. 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 I mean, I still have amps. And I, of course, when I play with my band and when I do any of that kind of stuff, I'm, I'm taking the amps out. But for a lot of situations, especially when you have to have a silent stage, something like the Iridium is a, a great solution. Mm-hmm. Nice. Nice. Do you have any go-to acoustic mics? Acoustic mics. I just picked up. Uh, well, I didn't just pick them up. I, re- I reviewed them a while back. The uh, the DPA twenty elevens. I, I reviewed yeah. a, a stereo pair of those, mm-hmm. and uh, I liked those so much that I bought them after the review was was nice. over. And so that's uh, that's the ones I'm using as my go to right now. I just like that they're nice and uh, neutral, mm-hmm. and they they work well. They also work really well on electric guitar and a lot of other things as well. But oh, wow. I found they're fantastic on acoustic guitar for what I want to hear. I can't believe DPA hasn't adopted the tagline yet good enough for the mars rover I, I don't know if you knew that but there's dpa yeah. mics on the mar or yeah well, on the mars rover i'm not yeah. sure they're allowed to talk about it like we weren't allowed to talk about it either in press it's you yeah. got to go oh. through a lot of hoops with nasa when your gear did is, i just did i just break no, uh, a, a dpa I, I'm sure yep. I'm sure DPA would be like, oh, shucks. People. <laughs> <laughs> it was kind of cool to see the Mars rover and a little red box on the on the desktop of the people communicating with it. Yeah. yeah. Cool. yeah they, they use some redneck stuff. And the, at, and the DPA nice. box. Yeah. yeah. Nice. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, yeah, well cool. cool. Yeah. I've got the little red box right here on my. Uh, oh, nice. My Scarlet 2i2. That's what I'm using. Very cool. Uh, <laughs> nice. Thank you. Yeah. For that. Sure. Uh, I've got one too. Uh, <laughs> I bet you do. <laughs> I have, uh, like you mentioned earlier, I'm still in the stage of my journey where I have enough IO in this humble bedroom <laughs> studio to record the Philharmonic. <laughs> I, <laughs> Thanks to Rednet. You know, just a couple Ethernet yeah. cables and yeah. I'm. Yeah, you're all you're set. golden. Yeah. That's, that's pretty cool. <laughs> I, I have the new Claret Plus 2 Pre, which I'm liking for the output on it, but. Yeah. Very cool. And the ISA. You got the ISA one. Oh, yeah. Too, I, right? This is an yeah. ISA one. I, I replaced 
my uh, gain booster, I'm not going to shout out the name, but uh, with an ISA one, uh, because that's what people do, right? And you buy a $500 mic pre to get rid of a gain. That's booster. what I want them to right. do anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and my wife just rolled her eyes at me when that happened. But, uh, but well, Mitch, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, is um, Let's talk about your, your EP. Where can people find your EP and uh, where can we learn a little bit more about you? Yeah, I, I would say, uh, well, it's, it's available Amazon, Apple Music, iTunes, Spotify, you know, all the all the CD Baby, all the outlets or whatever, but probably easiest to start at MitchGallagher.com. Okay. There's information about me there. There's links to uh, either picking up the EP or downloads or whatever you want to uh, you want to hear it up there as well. And of course, I'm on Facebook and Instagram and all those fun places as well. And so, uh, yeah, please uh, say hello. Stop by. Sounds great. Well, thank you for your time. Everybody listen to Mitch's EP. It's called Foundation. There's a, a lot of great musicians on that. Really good stuff. Mitch, thank you for your time and uh, have a thank great you day. So Take much. care. Yeah. That's been a real pleasure. Appreciate you guys. Thanks for being here. Thanks, everyone. 